Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Buter. And I'm John Fusco. It's August 17th, 2017, and on this week's show, does camera resolution even matter anymore? A huge shakeup that could make or break the movie theater business. What Facebook's original content means for filmmakers. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Everybody. Welcome to this week's show. We're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. Okay, so I'm going to start out by asking everyone a question. Uh, <laughs> us included? You included, and especially you, because you're the ones here to answer. Okay. Um, so if you had to take a gander at what the magic words of 2017 are, what would you say? All your questions are so, like esoteric <laughs> well who do you think i am who says Wait, gander take That's a gander question. at what was the second half? the magic words of 2017 the magic words of 2017 netflix if, if i had to take close a gander at the... like what are the big words of 2017 that like oh Co-fefe. okay yeah oh emily you didn't even give us a chance <laughs> <laughs> no it's actually not Co-fefe. it is wait for it Original content. Oh my god! Oh. This was your worst opening ever. No, I love you. <laughs> okay, you guys. There is some crazy original content coming your way. This week, Facebook launched a limited test for Facebook Watch, its new platform that will host several hundred short-form shows from many different high-quality partners, including A and E, BuzzFeed, National Geographic, and more. I feel like Facebook Watch is a very confusing name considering Apple has an Apple Watch and like Android has like Android watches. It's I feel like a Facebook Watch would be like something that you would wear on your wrist. Oh, that's my worst nightmare. Yeah, that's Facebook notifications on a watch. Oh, God. That's what the Apple Watch does. Terrible. So Facebook Watch will actually live as a tab on the Facebook homepage Um, and it'll be kind of like its own, you know, new form of YouTube. So what kind of content can we expect to see? Well, Fiji Simo, Facebook's VP of product, was kind of unspecific about that. What a name, by the way, Fiji Simo. <laughs> he said, quote, we are a platform for any creator or show, unquote. Good to know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really leaving the door open for everyone, which is great. But wait for it. Facebook is not prepared to pay content providers up front. Instead, ad revenue will be split from mid-roll spots sold by the Facebook sales team. Publishers can also make money from branded content in their shows, as long as it squares with Facebook's policies. But what that basically means is, if you want to make money from a Facebook watch video, it's on you. Hmm. This is a bad precedent to send, in my opinion, and I think I'm... other content creators' opinions. Yeah, it just seems like YouTube. And if YouTube didn't really succeed having all these branded channels, I don't know how Facebook thinks it could. We will see. TBD. Facebook is also producing and paying for original content internally, including a show called Virtually Dating, in which couples are set up on blind dates that occur entirely in virtual reality. Oh my god, it's my worst nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, two worst nightmares visualized. This is the worst show we've ever done. (laughs) Um, wait, question. Do you know, can anybody, like, upload content to Facebook Watch, or it has to be officially, like, well, through right their now, channels? 
right now it's in a pilot program, um, so it's only been rolled out to specific people to be tested because Facebook tests everything meticulously before it begins to roll things out to the public. So we don't know yet, but uh, we will soon find out. Simo said that Facebook Watch was created to essentially solve a problem. Right now, viewers discover videos on Facebook through the newsfeed, but the ever-changing algorithmic nature of that method of discovery is not conducive to building audiences, especially for episodic videos. Simo said, we found people want a place where they can go and just watch videos. I know that place. It's called YouTube. (laughs) True. According to Variety, shows featured in Watch will have their own special purpose Facebook pages and content displayed in the Watch menu will be personalized based on an individual user's likes, what's trending, and what their friends are watching. So it's going to incorporate and integrate the, the Facebook platform into the Facebook Watch user experience. You'll be able to follow shows and save them to a watch list, and you'll get notified when there are new episodes. There's no word yet on when Facebook Watch will roll out to the public, as I mentioned before, but when it does, we'll bet that Facebook, the third most visited site in the world, will be giving YouTube, the second most visited site, a run for its money. And that's not all for the original content use of today, because you know you wanted more. Yes. Also coming down the pipeline is $1 billion worth of content from Apple, a budget similar to Amazon's when it first got into original programming in 2013. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal, Apple isn't looking for original content to fully replace movie rentals or sales. Instead, it's hoping for new content that will encourage customers to consume both types of media through Apple services. So the lesson of the day is in-house is the name of the game. So I don't know about you guys, but even with all this original streaming content, blah, blah, blah going on, I still believe in going to the movies and theaters above all. And so I was extremely stoked to learn that MoviePass dropped its monthly fee to $9.95 for all users, which means that with a subscription, you can see a movie in theaters every single day of the month for less than the cost of a month of Netflix. This miracle happened because a former Netflix exec, Mitch Lowe, became MoviePass's CEO and insisted that it's price alone that's driving consumers away from the theater. So for now, his company will pay theaters the full rate for each ticket bought at the way reduced rate through its app, counting on the fact that, like most subscription services, users won't actually use it every day. Now, at first, I was just over the moon about this, thinking it's great for consumers and theaters alike, with the only real drawback being that the company's using consumers to data mine, but who doesn't these days? Still, I thought it might be too good to be true and leave it to our friend and reliable critical eye, film producer Dan Schoenbrunn, to articulate the potential harm. In a long Twitter thread at his account Dan the Icelicer, he says, In the short term, this will help ailing theaters. Consumers will be Robin Hooding by taking money from tech and giving it to theaters. But what's the long-term plan? To take a short-term loss subsidized by venture capitalists in order to gain power over the market. Soon, MoviePass holders will be hooked on a subscription model. They'll be used to paying 10 bucks a month for unlimited movies. They'll become loyal only to theaters that work with MoviePass, and at this point, MoviePass will have bargaining power over theaters, chains, and indies alike, and will set market terms. Schoenbrunn continues, It's not a coincidence that their CEO is one of Netflix co-founders. It's the same model Netflix used 10 years ago. Netflix's subscription model took control of the DVD market, They gained consumer loyalty, then consolidated power. The same thing will happen here unless theaters work together now to head this off at the pass. And Schoenbrunn's not alone. 
No less than major American theater chain AMC announced yesterday that it's looking for legal ways to opt out and block MoviePass from operating at its theaters for fear that the model's unsustainable and would create unrealistic audience expectations. What do you guys think? I think it's a bad thing for sure. My knee-jerk reaction is that what we want to do is revive the ticket sales um, in the theatrical industry. We don't want to cut prices and then um, get people hooked on a model that's going to actually bring in less money overall for filmmakers and for theaters. I'm still, I don't know, I'm still like on the fence about if it's good or bad. Uh, I think like the people that I know that do have movie pass or have had movie pass in the past are like, I have this great thing, but I don't really use it that often anyways. <laughs> so I think that maybe this will actually encourage people who have movie passes to go out and take advantage of, of it more because it's like they had to go see two movies a week or a movie, at least a movie a week to match what they paid for movie pass. So I don't think they were really putting in that effort anyways. Um, and now this might actually make them go see movies. I, I'm on the fence, too. I actually agree with both of what you said. And also, I was a little swayed back in the other direction away from Dan's argument when I saw on, on the article that I put about this on No Film School, a lot of our European listeners posted, and we know that Europeans are like the, you know, the group upholding cinema going the most and sort of the most cinephile snooty tootie. And so many of Whoa. So, so Coming many out of strong them, against I, the Europeans No, but here. this is a plus. So many of them said, yeah, we've had it this way in France or in the UK for years. There's There have been subscription services and subscription models in Europe for a long time. And clearly that's not killing the movie industry over there. So I think it could go either way. If you all out there are still interested in signing up despite some of these potential drawbacks, you can do so at moviepass.com. The service is reportedly available in 91% of American theaters, at least for now, until AMC blocks it. But the rest of you are out of luck for now uh, because it's not available in, uh, in other countries. That being said, the stated goal of the company is to access consumer data, so it's likely to expand beyond U.S. borders to reach more consumers soon. Moving on, last year I reported on how the MacArthur Foundation, one of this country's most substantial documentary film funders, was no longer going to be providing grants directly to individual films. This was obviously scary and disappointing for those of us in the doc community, but this week MacArthur announced how they're redirecting the funds, and it's actually pretty good news. $5.7 million is going to seven organizations to support professional nonfiction media makers from diverse backgrounds. Of that, $2.25 million will be regranted directly to independent film projects over three years, and the rest will support programs like fellowships and workshops. So ultimately, some of this money, a good chunk of this money, will still be going to filmmakers. And this might end up being even better for filmmakers since there are more places that you can access the funds from. So in addition to the eight documentary orgs that MacArthur already supported, the seven new places you might want to start looking for funding are... Dun -dun -dun, Bay Area Video Coalition, Center for Asian American Media, Latino Public Broadcasting, National Black Programming Consortium, Southern Documentary Fund, Sundance Institute, and Working Films. And now moving on to gear news. Sony is doing a pretty cool new promotion this month, and we wrote about it yesterday. We've made quite a fuss on the podcast the past couple weeks about Canon's latest DSLR not fulfilling the needs of an independent filmmaker, but there's one company that seems poised to swoop up all those ready to make a change, and that company is Sony. They announced a new nationwide quote-unquote A trade-up retail event with up to a $500 bonus offer 
on top of the trade-in value of your working DSLR or mirrorless camera. So if you trade in an eligible DSLR or mirrorless, you'll get that trade-in value plus $500 towards a new A9, $300 towards an A7R2 and A7S2, or $100 towards a A7 II. So you can trade in any working digital interchangeable lens camera to get one of the older models, but if you've got your eyes set on scoring the new A9, there's a specific yet pretty long list of eligible cameras that will get you that $500 bonus. All the Canon cameras are on there, as well as Nikons and Leicas, but you should go check that list out on our website if you're interested. The A trade-up deal lasts through September 30th and runs in parallel with instant rebates of up to $200 on the same eligible products, so you can combine all of these to get a pretty massive discount on your new Micro Four Thirds camera. You know what? My first camera was a Sony PD150, and I've had a weak spot kind of ever since. I'm excited that they're like trying to really come back with all this. Yeah, they're killing it. I mean, those cameras are supposed to be at least the best for low light. And the A9 is pretty expensive. Uh, I think the one bundle I saw was uh, like close to five grand when I was writing this story. I'm not sure how much just the body costs, but you can get the A7S or the AR uh, for less than three grand. A7 is less than two grand, I think, right now. Um, so it might be time. It's a good camera. And our second bit of news is something that Charles wrote up earlier this week. He's not here to talk about it himself, so I will try. The article was titled, DP Steve Yedlin Blows the Lid Off Camera Resolution Myths. And this is kind of a, I know this is going to be a, a, a hot topic for some of you because we see on the comments on our posts all the time about how, you know, 4K doesn't really matter, uh, resolution, like for, what's the difference between 4K, 8K, and uh, Steve Yedlin is here to dispel any of those myths. If you don't know who he is by name, you certainly know him by work. He's the cinematographer behind some exceptional movies from indie favorite Brick all the way to the massive blockbuster San Andreas. Earlier this week, Yedlin released a video series testing various resolution cameras against each other to see if resolution is all it's cracked up to be. He used an Alexa 65, which is 3K, a Sony F55, which is 4K, a Red Weapon, which is 6K, an RE435, with Super 35mm film scanned at 6K, and the MSM by IMAX, which is 65mm film, which was scanned at 11K. So unlike many resolution tests, he doesn't always tell you which camera is which, and that's part of the goal, to move us past our preconceptions about which camera is going to look one way or another, and to just look at the images and judge for ourselves. He argues we need to get beyond Ks, and he makes a very convincing case. While many resolution arguments circle around to purely technical information about the Bayer algorithms and actual resolution, Yedlin is focused purely on the audience perception. The biggest takeaway for filmmakers is that we have already likely passed the point where extra resolution is noticeable to an end user. While going from standard definition to high definition was a huge leap in image quality, going from HD to Ultra HD won't even be noticeable for most users, and anything beyond that offers no benefit at all. So while we can get super technical with the tech behind these resolution offerings, the question really is, have we already reached peak resolution? And Yedlin seems to think so. Go to the article to check out Yedlin's full videos on the subject. Indeed, a hot topic. We got lots of comments on that one on Facebook and on the article. 
So this week in Ask No Film School... So a reader named Liam Martin posted a question on our boards about what to do with his completed documentary short. And we know Liam listens to the show because he tweets at us a lot. So hey, Liam. Hi, Liam. Hi, Liam. Thanks for the question. And here is your answer. Liam gave us kind of a long post, um, but the condensed version is that he and two friends made a somewhat impromptu short about what he calls, quote, an often overlooked British minority group, unspecified. He said, the subject matter's worthy. By the way, I wish I could do this in a British accent. Maybe John should read it. I don't know. He is an actor. Uh, anyway, it relates to modern economic problems, uh, but it's not widely covered, so we don't want it to fall into obscurity. He says, I'm learning about festivals as I submit to them. I'm falling deeper and deeper into confusion about how to market it, distribute it, and get eyes on it. And he's wondering if he should enlist help. So first of all, I'm sure many of us listening can relate. So you're definitely not alone, Liam. We make a film that we feel like it could make an impact, but by the time it's done, our energy and resources are tapped out. Of course, the ideal situation is that you budget for some outreach from the beginning, but that doesn't always happen. The good news is that there's more ways than ever for short docs to get out there. The drawback is it's hard to sort through all of those options and there's more work competing for attention. So you really want to try to figure out where an audience that might care about your particular issue or topic will be. The first option that comes to mind for what sounds like a timely social issue doc is the short docs or op docs section of major newspapers or magazines like The Guardian or New York Times or The Atlantic which have built-in audiences and actively solicit and pay for films like these, these all accept submissions via their sites, so it's easy enough to at least try to get it in front of the editors. Festivals are definitely a way to get some visibility, but submitting and then ultimately screening is a long process, which might dilute the urgency of your film. Still, it's good to apply to select festivals, even just to increase your own credibility, I'd again look for specific audiences, like festivals that focus on British culture or human rights in this case. And if you think the film is really good, also apply to a few that are prestigious and high profile, like Sundance or Berlin, because if you get into one of those, then smaller festivals will start coming to you. Finally, there's of course always the option to just put the film out there on Vimeo and YouTube. But if you do this, I would try to partner with organizations who care about your issue. Like in Liam's case, are there support groups or agencies for this minority group in the UK? If so, these organizations are probably desperate for good content about their cause and can help spread and promote the video via their newsletters and social channels, or even sponsor some screenings or otherwise incorporate it into their programming. So organizations with a wide reach can really, really help you get the film out there and may even be willing to sponsor future projects along the same lines. Good luck, Liam, and please let us know how it pans out. And keep tweeting at us, because we love it. I like you. <laughs> and now moving on to movies that are opening this week. On Netflix, you can check out Icarus. It's already there. This documentary won the special jury prize in documentary earlier this year at Sundance. Filmmaker and documentarian Brian Fogel set out to uncover the truth about doping in sports, and a chance meeting with a Russian scientist transforms his story from a personal experiment into a geopolitical thriller involving Dirty Urine, Emily's favorite, Unexplained Death, and Olympic gold exposing the biggest scandal in sports history. Hey, I also like Unexplained Death. Randall Asulto of Liz Nord fame covered a <laughs> panel at Sundance in which Jake Swantko, the DP of Icarus, and John Bertain, a much easier name to say, the film's editor, appeared at the Canon Creative Studio to discuss their collaborative work on this explosive documentary. 
It's true. Randall Asulto is my boo. And it's also true that this was the, the documentary that we talked a lot about on the Sundance episode of the podcast because it was rumored that part of the reason why like Russians hacked into the Sundance database was because they opposed this documentary that exposes their whole doping scandal. Russia explosive indeed and coming to HBO on August 19th is nocturnal animals it's directed by Tom Ford the fashion designer who makes films as fashionable as his fashion this film had a massive premiere at Toronto last fall and was subsequently nominated for some awards in the winter it follows a wealthy art gallery owner played by Amy Adams who receives a draft of her ex-husband's new novel and once she starts reading it she just cannot put it down Jake Gyllenhaal is always great when he plays weirdos, and as the eccentric ex-husband, he doesn't disappoint. Michael Shannon earned an Oscar nomination for a supporting role as a sheriff in the ex-husband's novel. What a great cast. Yeah, I really like this movie a lot. I liked it, but I had... I'm not going to spoil anything, but okay. I don't think that the ending reveal paid off by any means. Mm. I was very underwhelmed by the reason driving this entire... Re- it's a revenge story. I, and the reason for revenge was not compelling for me. But yeah. Well, I really liked it a lot, and I think I liked it more because it maybe left things open-ended or whatever. I don't it didn't remember. really. Uh, eh, I don't know. We'll leave that to you, audience. But it's a super unconventional structure as far as, like, for a film. And you jump between real life and what's going on in the novel, and when it's mixed with Amy Adams' character's insomnia, it almost blends together so you don't really know what's real and what's a part of her ex-husband's story at, par- at times. Um, it definitely borderlines on melodrama. I will give you that, Emily. And I just think that for the most part, it actually ends up working out just because it's a really super stylized movie. Um, so it kind of feels like, yeah, like a really rich people's melodrama I liked it coming to theaters on August 18th is The Wound directed by John Trengove it's about Zolani a lonely factory worker who travels to the rural mountains with the men of his community to initiate a group of teenage boys into manhood our writer Oakley Anderson Moore sat down with Trengove prior to the film's Berlin premiere to talk about working with non-actors the politics of framing the male body and how the best work comes from pushing yourself into unfamiliar territory. You can read that article on the article associated with this podcast on our website. How would you guys go about framing the male body? I'm not sure I'm licensed to answer that question. Why is everyone looking at me? Also coming to theaters on August 18th is Dave Made a Maze, otherwise known as the most fun movie title I've heard in a long time. This film won the Audience Award at Slam Dance in addition to jury prizes at a number of other festivals. And it's now got a theatrical release, which, which is pretty impressive for a Slam Dance film. It's about an artist named Dave who has yet to complete anything significant in his career. And he builds a fort in his living room out of pure frustration, only to wind up trapped by this fantastical place of fitballs, booby traps, and critters of his own creation. It was directed by Bill Watterson. Wait, that's not the Calvin and Hobbes guy, is no, it? No, it's not. Oh. I thought it might be. And continuing this amazing summer of indies that we keep talking about, there are two more coming to theaters on Friday. First of all, Patty Cakes, and that's S as a dollar sign. Patty Cakes. What is it? <laughs> I'm not sure that's how a dollar sounds. <laughs> yeah. Patty Cake, bling, bling. Yeah, there you that- go. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. This film's been making waves on the festival circuit all year, and it's finally hitting theaters this Friday. 
It premiered at Sundance where Fox Searchlight outbid Lionsgate and Neon in a bidding war for ten and a half million bucks. Talk bling, about bling. dollar signs. <laughs> the film received two standing ovations at public screenings. Interestingly, the film has producers in common with another breakout, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which Searchlight bought at Sundance back in 2012. I will venture to say that that is not a coincidence. I'm also going to say that these were two standing ovations at public screenings at Sundance, <laughs> not just like <laughs> ever. At, I'm, I'm sure it's gotten more standing ovations. So Patty Cake Bling Bling was written and directed by Jeremy Jasper, and it stars Danielle McDonald as the titular Patty Cake Bling Bling. <laughs> oh, God. Good thing I'm here to crack myself up. How about Patty Kaching? Ooh, that's bad. good. Anyway, she plays an aspiring rapper who's fighting an unlikely quest for glory in her downtrodden hometown in New Jersey. Sounds like my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Kaching. I'm also so glad to report that one of my surprise undersung favorite films from Sundance is finally coming to theaters. Justin Chan's feature debut, Gook, is a very fresh take on the intense racial tensions in 90s Los Angeles. If Justin Chan's name sounds familiar, it's because he played, well, the Asian kid in the Twilight films, and in this one, he both acts and directs. He also wrote the film. Not Twilight. Gook. He plays the son of an immigrant trying to keep the family business together against the backdrop of the Rodney King beatings and the subsequent South Central riots with the help of an unlikely ally, an 11-year-old African-American misfit played by an amazing Simone Baker. The subject matter is serious, but the movie has a really unusual balance of intensity and charm and humor and also a unique black and white visual style. Back at Sundance, I interviewed Chong and his DP, Auntie Chang, who he actually met at a student film fest, and we also had Chang on a podcast with the Sundance DPs. So we're all over Gook. We are all over it, even though it's still hard to say. But their whole collaborative process and the way that Chan kind of um, went, you know, has gone back and forth from major Hollywood blockbusters to like the most independent possible films was really interesting. And now on to some upcoming deadlines for events and grants and such. The Async Short Film Competition has their deadline on September 30th. Quite a ways away, but you're going to need some time for this one. It's a cool competition we wrote about last week but forgot to mention on the show. This past spring, the composer Ryuchi Sakamoto released his album Async, which he described as a, quote, soundtrack for an imaginary Andrei Tarkovsky film. I love that. The Async short film competition is a competition in which he asks filmmakers to create a movie around his music. Sakamoto has composed the score to many films, including most recently Inaritu's epic The Revenant. The short films will be judged by Sakamoto and acclaimed filmmaker Thrill. You would see if you if you saw his name, you would recognize it. It's very hard. I still don't know how to pronounce it. I but he is a great did. filmmaker. He directed Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. So guys, let's give the guy like the respect of trying. <laughs> no, uh, I literally can't. Yeah, I've a tried. Pong, we're rest the call. <laughs> okay, we've given him the respect of trying. But he did win the Palme d'Or for Uncle Bunmei, and uh, he's a very sort of singular vision, as is Sakamoto. So this is a really cool uh, competition. Each artist has a special prize. Sakamoto's prize includes the license to use one piece of new music composed and produced by Ryuchi Sakamoto for your next film project and a $3,000 cash prize. Restacall's prize includes him coming on to serve as an advisor for your next film project 
and a $2,000 cash prize. That is so cool. I think this might be the coolest short film competition we've we've uh, heard about yeah, this year. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. It's it's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, targeting uh, you know outside-of-the-box movies. So if you got one of those or if you want to make one of those, we suggest this. The Jerome Foundation's Film and Video Grant Program has a deadline on August 24th. This foundation offers production grants for specific projects of up to $30,000 for emerging film, digital production, and video directors who reside in Minnesota and work in the genres of experimental, narrative, animation, or documentary. And now some festival deadlines. Portland Film Festival, or pfft, <laughs> has a deadline on Friday, so you <laughs> better get on it. Thank you for just I thought you just messed up what you were trying to say. But it was intentional. No, it's actually... (laughs) Anyway, it takes place in the lovely Portland, Oregon from October 30th to November 5th, 2017. Oh, that explains why their deadline is so soon. Because the festival's so soon. Mm -hmm. It's a week-long event jam-packed with networking, workshops, guest speakers, etc. We actually covered it last year, so I'll link to some of those articles in the podcast post. And, of course, it's one of the top 100-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway and one of... Movie Maker Magazine's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. I also think it's worth the entry fee because it apparently occurs on my favorite day of the year, Spooky Halloween. (laughs) Are we going to start talking about Halloween again now? (laughs) It's time to start talking about Halloween. Two months out, guys. Two months out. Get those sound effects ready, John. Okay, I'm, that that took way too much effort. <laughs> it was so great, though. I think it's still my favorite episode. Yeah, it was pretty good. You can submit to the Lone Star Film Festival with a deadline of August 23rd. This is the extended deadline, and it's the last chance to submit, so don't be a Lone Star and submit it now. Wait, I want to give this one a sound effect, because, like, Lone Star, Texas, right? Like, Ooh. Oh God. <laughs> is that good? I feel like that isn't that I don't associate that sound with Texas. I would go, whoosh, whoosh. Ooh, that's yeah. what I would do for my how I would frame the male body. For Randall's own. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> it takes place November eighth to twelfth in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, it features cash prizes and has been named one of the fifty festivals worth the entry fee for three consecutive years. Every <laughs> single cowboy in Fort Worth thinks you should apply <laughs> but you know like the the old west sound Woo-woo-woo. no that's uh ennio morricone the uh good bad and the ugly is that it sure like when the tumbleweeds rolling across the plains and they're about to have like a shootout oh yes ennio morricone's iconic score to the good the bad and the ugly that's what i meant <laughs> like uh yeah if i could whistle as we've discussed in past episodes there you go I've also Thanks, discussed John. my whistle in the past couple episodes. And Victoria has her very own film festival. The Victoria <laughs> Film Festival has a deadline on August 25th. This is the late deadline. The festival takes place from February 2nd to the 11th, 2018 in Victoria, British Columbia. And it is one of Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee for the last three years. I'm so proud of Vicky. That's awesome. Keep it going, Vic. What's a Canadian sound effect? Sorry. Don't, yeah. A boot. Eh? Poutine. <laughs> Hockey. <laughs> really good, guys. Keep them coming. <laughs> Canuck. 
Uh, what's that? What's that? Tim Hortikers? <laughs> Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons. <laughs> Oh, I was mixing him up with Tim, Tim Heidegger. Heidegger. <laughs> Tim Horton. You guys are also mixing up sound effects with words. <laughs> There's a lot of mushy mush happening here. Okay, moving on to <laughs> this week's Weekly Words of Wisdom. Here's Emily. If you haven't seen it yet, Josh and Benny Safdie's Good Time is worth your time. It's in theaters now in New York and L.A., and it stars Robert Pattinson as a down-and-out bank robber who finds himself in some pretty ridiculous situations that get more absurd and life-threatening by the minute. You can't look away. I'll give you that. The the Safdie bros are some of the finest DIY filmmakers in the New York scene, and they've taken things to the next level with this one, which they're calling a pulp film that's made to be consumed, as opposed to some of their previous films, which are much harder to watch and ask more of the audience, such as The Incredible Heaven Knows What, which I also recommend if you're looking for a challenging film. I was wondering where I'd heard this about the Safdie brothers from. I totally forgot that it was Heaven Knows What. Yeah, incredible. It takes place on the streets of New York. They plucked um, a drug addict right off the streets to star in their film and saved her life. Well, it's actually her story. Yep. She wrote about it in a book. Exactly. Yeah. So I spoke to the Safdies last week. And here's what they had to say. We wanted to make, we wanted to make a, something that felt like lightning, that felt like entertainment, and that you consume. And, and then at the same time, we, questions later, yeah, yeah, we wanted it to be, we wanted to make a piece of pulp. And pulp is designed to be shredded and to be, you know, it's, it's and disregarded almost. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but it's also designed to be consumed. So we designed it to be consumed. Uh, it's consumable in that regard. But pulp is also very dangerous, and it's also a reflection of society. But yeah, we, we do like to get involved, and, and we like to work with people who who can do, like our production designer, Sam Lysenko, who's done TV shows on basic cable, basic television, network television, and also big movies. He We've been making stuff with him since we were teenagers, and he... You know he can he can run sound if he knows how to run some sound recorders. I know that he could direct a movie if he wanted to. He could, you know, he could run camera. Probably not as much anymore, but he does have that awareness. And knowing that the roles could switch around is always, uh, you know, you want that. You want that confidence on on a set. Our writer Dylan Dempsey, who is not my boo, looked a little outside the box for some advice for filmmakers this week. He went up to the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival up in Montreal. (laughs) (laughs) Home of poutine, Tim Hortikers. (laughs) Tim Hortikers. I'm going to start a chain called Tim Hortiker. (laughs) Hordiker is like not a very great (laughs) last name. Well, okay, but it will get people through the door. <laughs> See, when we don't turn on the AC in the podcast booth beforehand, that's when the episodes start to go off the rails because our brains are melting by the end. Anyway, Dylan came back with an article that we called Inside Jokes, Five Career-Building Commandments from Apatow and More Successful Comedians. So it turns out comedians and filmmakers have to hustle in much the same way to succeed, and there's a lot we can learn from them, especially now that so many comics are making a name for themselves through their own DIY videos. John here has actually interviewed more than one filmmaker who got their start by making funny videos. So the article has some really practical advice, especially if your goal is building up social media followers. One that stood out to me came from comedy partner's Handsome Dancer. I think John's in that duo. No. No, he's just a handsome mathematician. They said that not only do you have to make good videos, but you have to find the right platform for your audience. 
One of their videos, Coinca Dance, see what they did there? Oh, no. I know. It was on YouTube for two years and got 200,000 plays. Then they moved it to Facebook, and it now has over 3 million plays because, according to them, Facebook al- algorithms work to promote Facebook's own videos and target the right people. So we'll see what happens You know, now, according to Emily's story from the top of the show. But for these guys, Facebook was the right platform. <clears throat> There's lots more very actionable tips like that in the article, so check it out. We'll link to it in the podcast post. In an article that's uh, coming up today, uh, I wrote up a video essay from Robert Brisson and his use of simplicity. The biggest takeaway from the essay for me was just how big of an emotional effect that visual economy can have on your audience. And so visual economy is a cool term Mm -hmm. also, I think. Anyways... Brisson's selection of images and the sequence they come in leave a lot open to audience interpretation. This withholding of information and emotion has the dual effect of being retained by the audience so that it builds up inside of them throughout the action of the entire film. This allows for an ultra-effective cathartic release as it reaches its conclusion. In fact, a focus on action is another way Brisson strengthens his emphasis on simplicity. It's the action that causes the destruction. This tactic is perhaps most notable in his film The Pickpocket, where the focus shifts from a simple object to the action of theft from which the object has inspired desire. The action of theft is then what leads to the character's demise. So, action, destruction. Many times in his films, when it's time for the character's demise to occur, however, the action appears off-screen. This technique of prolonging the reveal is one of Brisson's most useful takeaways for any filmmaker. Holding off that reveal and letting the audience's imagination linger on what could possibly be happening over the parts they can't see allows for maximum impact upon its resolution. The way you just read that, I feel like you could be a good video essay uh, narrator. Thanks, Em. I will keep that in mind. So we have a very important, exciting... Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. We we'll have something very that. special we've cooked up, especially for you guys this week. Yeah. It comes straight from none other than Jim 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 I thought you guys were like going to sing a song about it or something, and you actually had prepared <laughs> something, but that's okay. We are. Jim John Jim. So, John, do you want to tell us your big news? He has a. Yeah, so I, you know, I never went to film school, and... Uh, but I've always loved movies and really, yeah. And I was like really excited to get this job because of it. Really? Yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot from it and I've finally kind of gotten to the place where I'm ready to shoot my own thing. Really? Yeah. So this actually yesterday I launched a Kickstarter for my first short film ever called the guy. Yes. So, uh, if you guys would take a look at it, I don't really know how to do this. Um, Please support our boy, John Fusco. Look for his project, The Guy, on Kickstarter. It's featured on the homepage today. What? Yeah, Kickstarter, thank you uh, for naming me a project we love. Uh, yeah, so we have a really ambitious goal because it's kind of a ambitious movie. Um, if there's one thing I've learned from working here, a lot of the directors are like, don't be scared. Just do uh, do what you need to do, and um, I'm I'm doing that. So, please, if you can uh, give anything, I would be happy with anything. So, you know, even if it's like fifty cents, go wild. It's a lot of money that I'm asking for, and I'm really scared. <laughs> 
We support you. In fact, we literally support you. I feel very, very, the thing I'm most proud of of the week is that I was number one first. I was the first supporter because that is what a good work mom does. Emily's work wife. <laughs> I'm work mom. That's how it goes. So we'll leave a link to that Kickstarter in the podcast post. Only if I get a cut. You, you, you do. You get a mug. You can get a mug too, listeners. I'm really excited about the mug. You guys, the perks are great. Of course, John works every single week to help you all and promote your work and give you tips to make your work better here at No Film School. And so the least we can all do is uh, throw them a couple bucks or spread that link around. So Yeah, spread like if you spread it, that's also cool. Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do to help out. The guy on Kickstarter. The guy. And after you donate... Next Monday, you can listen to the next podcast. You guys won't even believe the family I'm having on Monday's interview podcast. Dad is Lloyd Kaufman, creator of The Toxic Avenger and King of B-Movies, whose movie studio Troma Entertainment has produced and distributed more than a thousand films. Mom is Pat Swinney Kaufman, who was the deputy film commissioner for New York State for 20 years and was called one of the most powerful women in the U.S. film industry by Variety magazine. And... As if that weren't enough, their daughter is Lisbeth Kaufman, co-founder of KitSplit, which is now the biggest online camera rental company. I call them the first family of DIY, and our conversation is one of the most off-the-wall and at the same time enlightening about the film industry that we've ever had on No Film School. So get ready for Monday. In the meantime, you can read about all this and more at nofilmschool.com and get links to everything we talked about on this show, plus John's Kickstarter campaign in this week's podcast post. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It really does make a difference. We've been consistently in that iTunes top 25 for film and TV, and it's thanks to you all and your support. And as always, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim John Jim. Jim John and Jim. We're talking to you at Liam Martin. As the guy. The guy. And we're all at No Film School. So put that in your poutine and eat it. <laughs> I like that in. <laughs>